There's a movie that came out when I was a kid um, based on a true story. It's called A Perfect Storm. You may have seen it. Um, it's a very harrowing movie about true events that there was this like literal perfect storm of a bunch of hurricanes or typhoons or I'm not quite sure, um, nor'easters and whatnot that all combined off of the coast of Maine, like the, the Atlantic Ocean, um, in an unexpected way that made this like unprecedented storm that was super, super dangerous to be out in. And there were many fishermen and, and stuff and boats that were out in the ocean at the time when these storms collided and created this perfect storm. And the movie kind of follows one fishing boat and the men on the boat and their families and their backstory. Um, I won't ruin the movie, but there's also like all these other side stories going at the same time of people that are like just kind of vacationers out on their yachts and this and that that just get caught in the storm and have no, like, no training, no preparation whatsoever to deal with uh, what's happening on the ocean. And the Coast Guard comes in on like helicopters and boats to rescue all these people throughout the movie. And I remember that really striking me. I was probably maybe 13 or 14 at the time. And I thought, maybe I should be in the Coast Guard because that's like really heroic. And my first thought was, yeah, I'll do that. And then I'll, I'll save a bunch of people. And then I'll like get my spot in heaven all worked out. And then I can kind of go do whatever I want. But that would be really dramatic, really heroic. I could be really proud of myself and sure that I did such obviously good deeds that I'm definitely guaranteed to go to heaven. And uh, I don't have to be perfect in all these other ways. Now, put aside the fact that I'm like not a very strong swimmer. And uh, I don't think that that would be the best profession for me to like risk death in order to save people from drowning. Um, But in any case, something in my head clicked that this made sense to me. This was how I kind of viewed the world, the purpose of life. Um, That in a way, like, in the end, it's just about a balance sheet. Have you done more good than bad? You know, and at, at the end, if you've done more good, and all the better if you do, like, a bunch of super good stuff right at the beginning, because then you, your account goes way up, and then you can kind of draw on that the rest of your life. Or another analogy, I kind of think, I was thinking about heaven sort of like getting into college, where there's this life that's just sort of guaranteed after this life, high school, which is like earth, and then heaven is college or whatever. Or maybe your, your heaven is the life beyond college once I get a job and I'm free and all this stuff and I have money. But this idea that there's some life that's next after this life and I have to perform a certain way, you know, not screw it up too bad, not fail, but also get some good marks, like get some stuff on my resume that makes me look pretty good so that I can get a good spot in a good college or in a good job or whatever. Um, but what I realized as I've gotten older is that that was a total misunderstanding of the whole problem of life, of like what, what we're actually about. Um, and thank God that the point of life is not to figure out some way to impress God. Like I was kind of thinking in my teenage years that I had to do something really grand, really extraordinary, really awesome and heroic to show God how brave, how strong, how generous I was. And then, but I'm still just kind of on my own because once I do that, then I can kind of on the weekends or, you know, in my free time, be apart from God and do kind of what I want because I've already satisfied what, what he wants. But even more than that, I think... Um, Part of it was just growing up and realizing that as hard as I tried, and maybe you've experienced this already, um, what I did, even the great things that I did, really didn't make that much of a difference. 
you know, in the grand scheme of things. Like, to come into the world and think, I'm going to save like four or five people from drowning, and that's like going to make this huge difference in the world. Meanwhile, just millions and millions of people are dying every day that you are doing nothing to help one iota. People are hungry, people are uh, suffering and sick, and I can do nothing. To, like, if the point of life is to, is to fix all the problems in the world, then we're all miserable failures. Right? So the problem is much, much worse. The problem is not, how am I going to prove my, myself? How am I going to prove my worth? How am I going to earn my spot in heaven? The problem is, how does anything I do matter? How, in a world that is totally hemmed in by death and decay and suffering and sin, how can I have a life that is full? How can what I do and how I live mean anything? That's the problem. It's much worse than what I thought. But the good news is that, therefore, the solution actually is much better than I thought. The problem is not how do I earn my spot and the solution is do something awesome. The problem is how am I not living at every single moment for death? How do I get out of bed in the morning with any hope whatsoever? And the solution is not just try hard, go do something really good, prove yourself out in the world, earn your spot. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the suffering and the death of the Son of God who loves me. That's the solution to the big, big problem. I heard a story last week of a priest. You may remember that about four years ago, over the summer, there was a fresh wave of, of revelations about clergy sex abuse, even up into the highest echelons of the church. And if you were alive, like 18 years ago when that first came out, um, that it was even worse in, in some ways because we thought like a lot of it was behind us and and the corruption in the church and everything, and the, and the hierarchy and the priesthood. And it was just this opening of this old wound, and so many people were angry, so many people were hurting um, inside the church, so many people were angry and hurting outside the church. It was just a really, really bad time and hard time. And this priest I know, he decided at his parish to uh, open up the church one night a week for what he called a holy hour of reparation. And he would just expose the Blessed Sacrament on the altar, and offer prayer in silence for anybody who wanted to come and pray for the victims of clergy sex abuse. And the first week he opened it, a few people came. And uh, as the weeks went on, and finally the fewer and fewer people came until the last week that he was going to offer this holy hour of reparation, no one came. And he came into the church, he unlocked it, he exposed the Blessed Sacrament on the altar, he sat in the pew and he prayed for an hour. And then after he had reposed the Blessed Sacrament um, and he was getting divested, he realized there actually was a woman kind of hiding in the back pew of the church that had been praying that, that whole time. He missed her come in. And she came up to him afterwards, after the holy hour was over, and said to him, um, when you started these holy hours, I didn't really believe that Jesus was present in the host. I didn't believe the bread was Jesus. But I came anyway because... It was for the victims. I wanted to do something for them. And then when I saw how few people were coming, I kept coming because I felt bad for you. And she said, now I think I'm starting to see how Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. He told this story, and I thought, 
of Veronica wiping the face of Jesus on his way towards Golgotha, towards his crucifixion. Or Simon the Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry his cross. That these people, who knows their background, whether they believe Jesus was the Son of God, whether they'd even heard of Jesus. And yet they saw him in his weakness. Veronica sees the face of Jesus bloody and spit upon. And she fights her way through the crowd to do this generous act of kindness, to wipe his face. Or Simon the Cyrene is in Jerusalem for the feast, maybe. Has heard about Jesus, not that interested, sounds like a kind of a controversial figure. And here he's being crucified, condemned to death, and he's pressed into service to carry the cross of Jesus. And he embraces it. Why? Because he sees this poor, suffering man stumble three times. He can't carry it by himself. And Simon, he becomes this friend of Jesus. Not because Jesus is successful and strong and attractive, but precisely because he's pitiful and weak and sad. And I thought of that priest. I came because it was for the victims. And then I came because I felt bad for you. And now I'm starting to see how Jesus is present in the Eucharist. Like, if you've ever tried to argue someone into faith in Jesus or faith in the Eucharist, you can try all the eloquence you want. You can try reading all the books you want. You can try to be so smart and so holy and so perfect and say all the right things, and it does nothing. And yet here, this priest in his weakness, in his helplessness, in like one of the worst times in the church, and maybe his whole priesthood, his embarrassment, his poverty, there is God inflaming a heart to love him and to see him. If Christ can allow himself to need us, then why do we think we need to be powerful? Why do we think we need to be successful? Why do we need to think, why do you think we need to show God how good we are when he's come to do this, to show us how good he is and how much he loves us? This is how we get our spot in heaven, by entering into this mystery and allowing it to enter into us, this mystery of the Lord's death, by becoming one with the crucified Jesus, by letting go of our preoccupation with his success and our desire for power, and by letting him give himself to us, to let Jesus give himself to us, and then in response to give ourselves completely to him. That's our spot in heaven. It's him. This liturgy is so beautiful. It's once a year the church celebrates the funeral of her bridegroom, Jesus. And so we don't celebrate Mass today. But we do receive communion after um, veneration of the cross. But in just a few moments, we'll do what's called the solemn intercessions. Once a year when the church prays for the whole world on this day of Jesus' crucifixion in a solemn way, which we'll do in a few moments. And then we will uh, venerate the wood of the cross. We'll bring the crucifix up into the front and you'll have a chance to come up and venerate as you feel comfortable um, the, the wood of the cross on which hung the salvation of the world. Um, and so I invite you with reverence to do that, to give thanks to God in your own poverty, your own weakness, your own sinfulness, to, to see how much the Lord loves us and how much he wants to give himself to us.